Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. and fallen into darkness. There is no escape, and there is no reprieve. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2. I am G.M. Danielson, your guide through these twisted worlds of the most disturbed imaginations. We come together once again to traverse the deep dungeons of our story vault. Follow me to your seat in this theater of terror. <laughs> Last time on the Simply Scary Podcast. <sighs> I'm getting too old for this ghost-chasing nonsense. It'll be worth it, Otis. Once we get our hands on that amulet, we can have anything we want. <laughs> uh, you mind telling me who gave you that map of yours, anyway? I told you before, I don't know his name. What's the price? 
There's no price, Jiri, just the footsteps it took to get here. My source told me things that no one else could possibly have known. And once we lift the amulet from Danielson's corpse, there is no stopping us. Otis. Otis, look. There. There it is. Oh, the scribe was right. It is real. I knew it was real. And when I'm finished with GM Danielson, he'll be as dead as a doornail. I'm not sure I like where this is going. Ian wa precipio tibi. Aperte at novum dominum. Ne furta ne manient clauses et te ipsum mihi revelare. <laughs> it's finished. Time to meet our destiny, Otis. Holy hell, it worked. I can't believe it worked. What did you just read? <gasps> there it is. The resting place of G.M. Danielson. The map was right. Here, help me remove the lid. And push. Oh my god. The talisman. All mine. Don't you mean ours, kid? No, I don't. Goodbye, Otis. Everyone knows no one can serve two masters, you old fool. This ambulance only master will be me. <laughs> Hello, GM. I don't suppose you'll mind much if I take... This. <laughs> Come to daddy. <laughs> Or somebody better be dead. Be careful, honey. Yeah, yeah. Be right back. Oh, I'm coming. I'm coming. Oh, this better be good. 
Yes? What can I do for you? Is this the home of Jesse Cornett? Uh, well, yeah. Says so on my mailbox. What do you want? It's 3 a.m. I've got to be up in three hours, so... I request the presence of Jesse Cornett, the former producer of the Simply Scary Podcast. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're speaking to him. Now, like I said, I've got to get up early, so... <clears throat> you have made some very powerful enemies, Mr. Cornett. <clears throat> what modern medicine can do. <laughs> but if you like, you can kiss my other dark side. Summon him now. Over my dead body. You know how people say that if something seems too good to be true, it usually is? Turns out they're right. 
I recently moved in with my boyfriend. He has a beautiful space in an old building, penthouse and everything. We hadn't been together that long, but I knew from the first time I met him that he was the one. We'd be together till death do us part, if it was up to me at least. At the beginning of the relationship, I wasn't sure if he felt the same way. He was always a bit distant. He always referred to me as Babe, Honey, some nickname. Never my name. According to John Tucker Must Die, a movie filled to the brim with advice for life, this is a clear way of knowing that a guy is two-timing you. I'm sure he was seeing multiple girls at the beginning, but that's okay. It's the 21st century after all. But that's not what the story is about. When he asked me to move in with him, I was thrilled. I had been living in a rundown apartment with six other people and owned no furniture. Packing up my stuff was easy, and his apartment was a dream. I had only been over there two or three times before I moved in. For some reason, he always seemed to prefer staying at my place. Maybe it made him feel young. Who knows? Cal worked a lot, so I would spend the days alone in the flat. I'm a painter, and Cal was very supportive of my art. He told me I could use the spare bedroom as a studio, and he even convinced me to quit my waitressing job so I could dedicate all my time to my art. I loved him so much. The first days in the flat, as I was setting up the workshop, I heard sounds coming from the wall. Rats. Damn. I've lived in my fair share of crappy flats, so I'm not unfamiliar with the sounds of critters in the walls. Then the flies appeared. I was taking a break from painting, sitting on the floor of the studio, eating a slice of pizza, trying to figure out what the piece was missing. A fat fly landed on my pizza. I shook it angrily. I spotted another fat fly buzzing right next to it. I looked around the room. There were at least five flies there. When I told Cal about it later, he got really annoyed. What the hell have you been doing in there? I shrugged, frowning. His anger surprised me. Made me uncomfortable. You don't eat in there, do you? I... Sometimes? Well, maybe if you weren't such a pig, this wouldn't happen. God, if you're gonna make a mess, at least don't complain to me about it. I... I'm sorry. His whole demeanor changed so fast. It didn't occur to me that it was my fault. <sighs> oh, babe, no. I'm sorry. It's just... I've been under a lot of pressure lately. I didn't mean to take it out on you. Just ignore the flies. I'm sure they'll go away eventually. The next day, there were even more flies. I didn't say anything to Cal. I was too worried about his reaction. There was also a strange smell in the room. I was sincerely worried that I had accidentally dropped food somewhere, so I cleaned the whole room. Nothing. I had left the window wide open since I moved in. I like to paint in the cold, so I decided the smell and the flies must be coming from somewhere outside. I closed the window. When I returned to the room after getting lunch, the smell had gotten much worse. I hadn't really noticed it as I painted, but after the fresh air from the outside, 
the stench was impossible to ignore. A rank stench of decay. I closed the door and opened the window. I decided I had to talk to Cal about it later. I guess one of the rats had died in the walls or something. Yeah, it does smell a little funky in here. Do you think it could be rats, Cal? A dead one? In the wall, maybe? <laughs> rats? No, we don't have rats here. No, I'm pretty sure we don't. I don't know why you'd think that. Too much paint in that little room, I think. The fumes are getting to you. Cal's eyes went dark with anger before he managed to pull himself together. I hadn't realized how temperamental he was before I moved in with him. You know what? I bet it's from that downstairs neighbor. Cal's demeanor changed, and he relaxed. You remember the weird guy we saw on the lift that first day? I shuddered. I remembered. I bet it's him. His apartment would be right under this room. I don't want to know what he's doing down there. Just spray some Febreze. I'm sure it'll go away eventually. How could I forget the downstairs neighbor? I had only seen him once, the day I moved in, but it had made an impression. We had been taking the elevator down to get the last of my stuff, and it stopped on the floor below the apartment. I noticed Cal looking uncomfortable, probably anticipating the neighbor. The doors opened, and I felt my nostrils flare in objection. The man waiting outside the doors was tall, skinny, dressed in all black, and smelled worse than anyone I have ever encountered. He locked eyes with me, then let his gaze slide over to Cal, and then back to me. I shuddered involuntarily. He frowned, staring at me for several seconds. Then he entered the lift without a word. We rode down in silence. Every time I took that elevator, I worried that I'd run into him. I tried not to think about what he could be doing in his apartment to cause such a pungent odor one floor up. The next day were more flies, and the smell was even stronger. I called Cal at work. You're exaggerating. It can't be that bad. Do what I said and get some Febreze and get over it. And don't disturb me at work unless it's actually important. If there is a rat there, the smell will go away eventually. Don't be such a prima donna. I didn't really want to press the issue. He seemed to be really stressed. I just kept the door closed and the window open and doused the whole room with Febreze like he told me to. I spent the day sketching outside instead, unable to handle the stench. The smell didn't improve. It just got worse. I wanted to paint, but I couldn't stand being in that room. I was probably being a bit of a diva, but Cal didn't have to work in that smell. I thought about the sounds I'd heard the first days. To me, that had sounded like some very big rats. One of those dying in my wall could definitely stink up a room. But maybe Cal was right after all. Maybe it was the downstairs neighbor. I figured I had to talk to that weird guy. At least I'd give it a shot. After talking myself up, I went to ring his doorbell. As the door cracked open, the smell of stale sweat and cat piss rolled over me. I almost staggered backwards. He opened the door just as much as the security chain would allow. 
Um, excuse me, sir. I live right upstairs. I just moved in with... I stopped myself short as I saw him start to slowly close the door. Sorry, I'll be fast. It's just a bit awkward, but there's kind of a smell in our apartment. His eyes went wide, but he didn't say anything. He just stood there, staring at me. The door stopped moving. I, um, my boyfriend suggested that maybe you... I faltered. His gaze didn't waver for a moment. I stood there for ten seconds, considering whether I should run. In the end, my social conditioning not to be rude took over. I tried again. There's a bit of a weird smell in our apartment, and my boyfriend suggested that you might know something about it. His face contorted into a frown. He still didn't say anything. I mean, I I don't know. I... you... I was flailing. Uh, do you know if there's rats in the building? I finished, defeated. He smiled. No, no rats. <laughs> Cats. Um, okay, well... Bye then. I turned, walking quickly down the hall. The door slammed shut behind me. A moment later, I heard it open again, and he called after me. Lady, maybe you shouldn't be here, lady. I turned, only to see his door slam shut for the second time. I continued walking, thoroughly unsettled. The door opened again. I didn't turn around, I just started walking faster. Maybe not so safe, lady. With rats. (sighs) Frantically, I pressed the elevator button over and over. I heard the door click shut behind me. I swore to not ever talk to that guy again. Whatever the hell he was doing to make our beautiful home smell like death, I didn't want to know. Back in the apartment... The odor had started to spread into the living room. I realized I was scared that Cal would get mad. I knew he thought I had messed something up in the workshop. The idea that I was scared of his reaction unsettled me. He was the love of my life after all. I decided I was nervous because I wanted him to be happy, that I didn't want him to be stressed about anything else. I decided I wasn't scared of him. I loved him, after all. As I went over our relationship in my head, it hit me that the smell here was completely different from the downstairs apartment. There, it smelled like stale sweat and old cat urine. Here, it smelled like death. No rats, my ass. A large rat in the wall was the only explanation. I figured it was time to call an exterminator, I briefly considered calling Cal to see if he had any objections, but then I remembered how mad he'd been the last time I called him at work. He thought I was behaving like a princess. I decided I'd just do it on my own, and dip into the little money I had left. I couldn't paint in a room like that, and I was a grown woman. I could handle my own problems. I called an exterminator. He referred me to a guy that specialized in removing dead rats from walls. Apparently, that's a thing. 
Lucky for me, he had a cancellation, so he could come right over. The moment he arrived, he took one sniff and confirmed my suspicions. Oh, yes, you have a dead rat. Probably several. You know, this happens sometimes when people put out rat poison. Their nest is probably in your wall and they crawled back in here to die. But don't worry about a thing, ma'am. I'll take care of it. I just have to cut a hole in the wall. Is that okay? I frowned, thinking Cal would get upset. But then again, he never goes into the studio. I figured I could just put a canvas in front of the hole and get it fixed. With these exposed bricks, it's really easy to patch it back up. Just slap on some mortar and chuck the bricks back in place. Anyone could do it. You wouldn't be able to tell at all. I told him to go ahead. I was sitting in the kitchen when the police showed up. I was sitting in the interrogation room when they told me about the dead body they found behind the wall. I was sitting in the lawyer's office when they told me it was the remains of Cal's previous girlfriend. I was sitting in the witness box in the courtroom when they told me he had left her there to die a slow, horrifying death. I was sitting in the stands when they gave him life without parole for premeditated murder. But I was sitting all alone in a cheap motel when I realized that she had still been alive when I moved in. The building really didn't have rats. just received word that Jesse Cornett has been apprehended and is being transported here at this very moment. Wonderful news, Elias. I am pleased. He showed quite a bit of resistance, I'm afraid. His wife as well. Such was expected, but is no matter. Once our plan is complete and the world remade in our image... It will be as if they never existed. Of course, my lord, of course. And what of Carlisle? Has he been located yet? No word on the dummy, sire. But our agents are tracking it as we speak. I am told it is only a matter of time. Good. Good. And what of G.M. Danielson? Reports are that he has been neutralized, my lord, and is no longer a threat. Jason Hill has proven to be a most enthusiastic and unwitting catalyst. <laughs> Unable to resist temptation and promises of glory, was he? So pathetic, these third-density vermin. But such useful, useful puppets. <laughs> yes, my lord, yes indeed they are. No doubt about it, sir. And Elias, have we found a suitable replacement for Danielson? Someone more amenable to our interests? We are still searching for the ideal candidate, my lord. But we have narrowed it down to three individuals who the public finds intriguing. I believe you will be most pleased with any of them. 
Excellent. Once the purge is complete, we can then proceed with the next phase of the... transformation. And remove the veil completely. It will be most glorious, my lord. I can hardly contain my excitement. It has been a long time, Elias. My most faithful servant. Have faith, my son. Our exile is over. And soon, the remaining shackles shall be undone. The race of man shall pay dearly for contesting our dominion. Their awakening shall be extinguished like a flame within a vacuum. Quickly. And without mercy. As it should be, my lord. I cannot wait for the end to finally come. I have waited so long, sire. Patience, Elias. Patience. In a short while, the past age with all its promises of hope and orderly time shall descend into darkness and chaos. And I shall emerge as its one and only god. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Sometimes he dreamed. Not regularly, not often, but sometimes. The content was usually mundane or silly, like arriving at the carnival wearing nothing but swim trunks, or wandering through abandoned towns looking for open bars. But sometimes the dreams were scary instead of silly, especially since, occasionally, they had deeper-rooted meanings. And deep down, Hank Bott knew it. Sometimes he dreamt of Holly, spelt with an I, as she always made sure to point out, who was perpetually young and always nine months pregnant. In those dreams, his foster-turned-runaway old flame was homeless and dirty and staring at him hatefully amid a makeshift home of cardboard boxes, pointing an accusatory finger in his direction. Those dreams always ended in gore, when her swollen belly popped and projected all its bloody glory onto him, the cause of all her troubles. Of course, Hank had no idea if he had actually impregnated her all those years ago. She said he was the father, but 
That had been back in the 1970s, before DNA testing, so there'd been no way to prove it. Hell, for all he knew, she hadn't actually been pregnant at all, and had just made the whole thing up for attention. There had certainly been a lot of drama queen in Holly. Either way, he had hightailed it out of town less than a week after she told him, months before she would have started to show. So he had no idea what had become of her, or her alleged child. He didn't think about it much, except when he dreamt. Hank wasn't the fatherly type. He'd had the dream tonight, and jolted awake, squinting in the harsh sunlight and wincing from the sharp pains in his back as his muscles and discs complained about spending the night on the floor. Hank supposed he probably should have made more of an effort to get to the bed, but he'd been too lit last night to give a damn. Truthfully, he was somewhat surprised that he'd managed to make it back to the motel at all. Many nights he hadn't been so fortunate, and had spent the evening on park benches, in doorways, in abandoned buildings, or, worse of all, homeless shelters. Once in a blue moon, he'd even wound up in the county jail drunk tank. He glanced towards the clock. It was 1.23pm. He'd overslept, badly, and the boss would be pissed. The carnival opened at noon, and he was technically supposed to be there at opening. It got busier at night, though, and they needed all the hands they could get. Hank forced himself to get up. If he came in two hours late, it was better than not going in at all. And, slave wages or not, he needed the money if he wanted his nightly whiskey. Hank Bott was never one to turn down a whiskey. The carnival was loud and riotous and an assault on the senses, especially so since he was hungover. Although being hungover had become habitual for him, and he supposed to some extent his body had adjusted to the perpetual toxicity. Morton carried on as if he was pissed, but Hank knew he was happy to see him. Carnies often skipped town, and bosses like Morton were happy to get whatever help they could. Hank had been working for the carnival circuit for years, and he knew how to handle most of the duties. But he wasn't exactly thrilled when Morton threw a bag of sawdust at him. Some kid puked a few feet off the tilt-a-whirl. Go clean it up. The barf's right outside Mike's tent. Mike. (sighs) Great. Mystic Mike was one of the star attractions of the carnival who made his money by telling old ladies whatever they wanted to hear about long-dead husbands, and promising starry-eyed teenage girls that they would meet Prince Charming one day. It was all hogwash, of course, but well done, hogwash. Deep down, Hank admired Mike. He was a con man, but a damn good one. He was a smooth talker, skilled at his craft, and a surprisingly sharp dresser to boot, whereas most fortune tellers paraded around in bandanas and gold earrings. Mike rarely diverted from tailored suits and shiny black dress shoes with matching socks. His strength was in his ability to observe people's clothing, mannerisms, speech, and give cold readings on the spot that were usually just accurate enough to awe the rubes to their core. Mystic Mike was the personification of everything Hank wasn't. Even standing next to the star-covered tent made Hank feel inferior, and cleaning up some brat's spilled cookies outside of it did nothing to improve his standing. Mike's tent was crowded, as usual. A line had formed outside of it and was growing rapidly, 
Several patrons had sidestepped the puke in disgust and were clearly relieved to see Hank trudging towards it with the sawdust. A little boy shouted from somewhere in the crowd. The boy pointed his grubby little finger at Hank, eliciting a chorus of snickers. It wasn't the first time that Hank had been mistaken for a pirate, although he wasn't sure why. He didn't have an eye patch or a peg leg, and he despised parrots. But he did have an uneven gait and shaved rarely. Perhaps that was the problem. Hank cleaned the mess and then shuffled off towards the Tilt-A-Whirl. Blake, its operator, was contemptible. But he sometimes let Hank help out and subsequently sneak peeks up girls' skirts. Hank didn't have too many joys left in life, and so his perversions provided fleeting entertainment. Unfortunately, Blake didn't need any help. He was even more hungover than Hank was, and in a meaner mood than usual. With no rides to set up or take down, Hank wandered through the carnival, hoping to get through the day with as little hassle and as much pay as possible. He'd wanted to be trained as a ride operator so he could keep busy and earn additional bucks while on duty, but Morton was sluggish in taking him on. Hank supposed he'd smelled the booze on his breath once too often. Guys like Hank were at the bottom of the food chain on the carnival circuit, not to mention society at large. Wandering aimlessly around the carnival made Hank acutely aware of his misfortunes and shortcomings. The way his life had unfairly played out to plot against him. Sometimes Hank daydreamed too. Mostly about what it would be like to have talent and prestige and poise. A way to become one of the acts rather than a background groupie. The day turned out to be more of a disaster than usual. There were a total of three sick-ups and 14 food spills, all of which were Hank's problem. Everywhere he ventured, he got dirty looks, even from the performers at the freak show, which, due to political correctness, had recently been renamed the Oddities Tent. Hank supposed he looked rougher than normal, but it still annoyed him when people gave him dirty looks, especially kids. Hank hated kids. Over the course of the afternoon, he'd also spotted three girls who resembled Holly. Although, God knows, his long-lost ex-girlfriend wouldn't look half as good nowadays, and he couldn't help but glance, maybe even leer at them. He didn't know why he periodically thought back to Holly. He hadn't loved her as much as he'd lusted after her, and she'd been a real pain. She'd yelled at him when he didn't pick up his clothes or do the dishes. Woman's work, in Hank's opinion. Before the drugs, his ma had always done that stuff. Holly had called him a lazy, no-good bum when he asked her to buy him some clothes, even though she had the waitressing job, and she knew plenty well that he couldn't get as much as a bag boy gig. She'd go out with her friends and accuse him of being jealous when he demanded to know her whereabouts. Worse still, she didn't like him going out with his buddies, or as much glancing in another woman's direction. But he was a guy, that was his nature. She tried to talk to him when he was watching TV, or she'd interrupt his favourite song on the radio. Petty and annoying crap like that could drive a guy crazy after a while. Occasionally, he'd blown up at her, screaming loud enough to shake the pavement they stood on. She said she was scared of him, but he'd never hit her once. 
even when he really wanted to and she damned well deserved it. He'd been happy when he'd made the decision to hop on a freight train out of town and leave her without as much as a goodbye, subsequently ensuring no weepy dramatic scenes, and he never sought her out again. But he'd never forgotten her either. The chick had really gotten under his skin, and every lookalike he saw, even decades later, hit that fact home hard. By the end of the day... Hank was desperate for a drink and ambled hurriedly into the captain's daughter bar like it was the only refuge in a storm. The big blonde broad behind the counter, who bore more than a passing resemblance to Miss Piggy, recognised him on sight and instantly reached for the whiskey. Hey there, Hank. How's life been treating you? Never better. (sighs) Pour me a glass of Jack, would you? You got it, Hank. Hank had been making the bar his last call of the day for the entire three weeks he'd been in the town. It stayed open till 3am and it was close to the no-tell motel he'd holed himself up in, unwilling to shack up with the rest of the carnies in the communal trailers. Hank didn't much care for the other carnies. Most seemed shady and on more than one occasion he'd had his liquor stolen. Hank had found that, on average, You meet a nicer class of person off-site in bars and motels or hell, even down Skid Row. Hank nursed his liquor at the counter and pretended not to notice the blonde bar chick checking out the huge scar that ran down his right arm. He'd gotten in a bar fight several years before, but he'd been so drunk at the time that he couldn't even remember exactly what the fight had been about. He eventually took his drink to a table in the back corner of the room. The couple sitting beside him smelled vaguely of chocolate chip cookies. Hank supposed they worked at the bakery across the street. He loved the smell of chocolate chip cookies. They reminded him of his mother. They had baked together when he was little, before she discovered LSD. Those had been the good old days. He'd never known his father. By all accounts, he'd been a booze hound, but his mother had done her best. Sixteen years old or not, she'd been a good ma, until she met a long-haired loser named Doug, who introduced her to the commune where she'd started experimenting with every hallucinogenic in existence. Doug left her shortly after crossing her path, but his legacy lived on via her addiction. By the time Hank was ten, she couldn't take care of herself, let alone make him cookies. He was surprised social services hadn't taken him, He had, as they say, fallen through the cracks. He ran away at 15. He never saw his ma again, but he had called in to check on her periodically. She stopped answering when he was 17. At 18, he'd gone home to see her, only to learn that she'd OD'd and died in the back row of a run-down movie theatre. It was a sorry end for a girl who had grown up singing gospel. Then again... Hank always assumed that it was the church that had destroyed her. His super-religious grandparents had surely driven his mother to rebellion. There was a reason she'd never let him meet them. His mother's death had crushed Hank with depression, and he went back on the road, travelling and working to keep himself busy and dull the senses to everything but the basic instinct to survive. He'd met Holly a few months later, She came from an even more screwed up background than he did, and they'd bonded over their shared dysfunctions. 
During those late teen years, Hank got to enjoy what most people considered normal coming-of-age experiences. Going miniature golfing, necking in the back of movie theatres, dancing and, of course, going on carnival rides. But then he'd started drinking, and Holly started complaining. When she claimed that she was pregnant, he cut and run, crushing her dreams of the glorious white wedding and nice picket fence house. Hank's dreams hadn't come true either. He'd always wished that he could sing, because being a lounge singer seemed a hell of a lot more comfortable than being a carny. But he didn't have the range. Nowadays, his dreams were far more modest. He hoped to move to Oregon, where the weather was cool. He hated the California heat and the blistering sunburns it granted to him, no matter how much lotion he slathered on whenever he could afford it and remembered to use it. Of course, he'd have to work a long time more before he could settle down anywhere. The Oregon plan, just like the lounge singer aspirations, were merely a pipe dream. He drank until he couldn't see straight, and refused to get up until he was being hurried out at closing time. The night was dark, but warm. Hank staggered outside, vaguely aware that the motel and its comfy bed was only three blocks away. But he was tired and groggy, so three blocks might have well have been 30 miles. There was a park across the street from the bar. Well, perhaps nothing as grandiose as a park, but it was a patch of green trees and shrubbery separating the town from the highway. And it looked like a nice, quiet place, an ideal location to camp out in warm weather. Hank stumbled across the street and fought his way through the dense foliage. He found an ideal spot to lie down against a thick, sturdy tree trunk and allowed himself to sink into the mud and grass, using one of the tree's mossy roots as a pillow. Within minutes, he was asleep and dreaming of Holly. She was standing in the carnival concession stand, serving up popcorn. She turned to look at him, and surprisingly, she wasn't pregnant this time. She was still slim and pretty, smiling and laughing in the way that had initially attracted him to her. She was his jolly Holly. God, how she'd hated it whenever he'd called her that. But she always smiled whenever he did so. She was wearing a 1950s-style apron, like the one his mother had owned. Dream Holly picked up a scoop of popcorn and strutted over to him, putting a little sway in her step and rocking her hips in the way that used to drive him wild. Here, sugar. Have a treat. Her tone was one he'd only heard during their intimate moments, and sugar had been her nickname for him. How could he have forgotten that? She approached him, eyes sparkling, but now she wasn't holding popcorn. She was holding grapes, which she hand-fed him eagerly, giggling in a charming, girlish way as he obediently swallowed them down. Suddenly, in the distance, Hank heard a commotion, banging and crashing, and, oddly, the unmistakable sound of digging, and what seemed like bright lights going off in the corner of his eyes. There's been an accident. Hank tried to turn towards the concession window, expecting to see a ride collapsing in flames, but Dream Holly would not be ignored. She threw aside the grapes and rushed him, taking his head in her hands and kissing him deeply and passionately. 
her lips on his didn't feel like a dream, and neither did the heat of her body as she pushed against him. It had been a long time since Hank had felt anything even remotely intimate, and the shock of it jolted him awake. He was expecting to find himself alone, or somehow reunited with Holly, but what he didn't expect was precisely what he saw. Something, some monstrous thing was lying on top of him, and had attached itself to his lips. Hank tried to scream as he jerked his body violently upwards. With all his might, he used both his moderately muscular arms to propel the creature away. The force of the shove sent its warm body sailing backwards, letting out a guttural gurgle with rage that was somewhere between a cry and a roar. Hank abruptly got to his feet, shaking and coughing. His throat was raw and sore, but his head was clear. Whatever oblivion the alcohol had afforded him was completely spent. Before he could step forward, the creature lunged at him again. Hank wasn't young, but he was strong, unaccustomed to working on crews that erected roller coasters and stands that sometimes weighed a total of 300 pounds. Using all his might and considerable girth, he pushed the creature downwards as it attempted to crawl up his chest. It struggled fiercely and emitted outraged shrieks as he punched and stomped it repeatedly. When it was completely still, he turned and ran for his life. His panic was intense and primitive. He ran towards the edge of the woods and nearly cried out with joy and relief when he saw the streetlights. He tripped and collapsed onto the ground and kissed the concrete before rising again and making a beeline towards the motel. He wasn't 20 feet down the street before he started to second-guess the incident. He'd been drunk, and he was notorious for having deeply troubling and incredibly realistic dreams. Monsters didn't exist, so surely what had just occurred was nothing more than a particularly intense nightmare. You've got to stop drinking. It's killing you. Then, another thought came to him. It was crazy and rash, but also impulsive and impossible to ignore. Go back. You'll see there's nothing there and it's all in your head. And then you'll make a pact to quit the booze. Before he could talk himself out of it, Hank turned around and walked back towards the woods guided by the streetlights and the faint glow of the full moon. He expected to find nothing but his own footprints, but, to his utter surprise, the creature was still lying where he had left it, unmoving. Hank approached it, tentatively, strongly assuming that it was dead. In the light of the moon, he could see that it was grey and covered with flabby skin, with only the faintest of hairs covering its body. He instantly envisioned photos he'd seen of naked mole rats, although he couldn't remember precisely where he might have seen such pictures. The creature was vaguely humanoid, with an oval-shaped head, two arms, two legs, and feet and hands that ended in four digits with sharp talons. It was naked, but seemingly sexless, 
Its nose was a tiny lump with two nostrils, and its mouth was akin to an octopus's suction. Its closed eyes were nothing but two tiny slits. It looked dead, but it was breathing. Hank could see its chest rising and falling rhythmically. Apparently, he'd only knocked it unconscious. Most importantly, it was not a figment of his imagination. The thing, whatever it was, was very, very real, as was the fresh hole under the shrubs where it had unearthed itself from. I'd make a fortune on the circuit. The thought had come to Hank suddenly. He envisioned crowds lining up outside the freak show, or Oddity's tent, as the PC police had seemed fit to deem it, to get a glimpse of the strange thing with the weird anatomy. As he stood under the trees in the dead of night, Hank Bott realized that he'd struck gold. He decided right there and then that the creature was coming with him. He had a small bit of duct tape in his back pocket. He'd learned from many years on the job to always keep it handy. He carefully bent down and tied the thing's arms and legs together, praying that it wouldn't suddenly wake up and start fighting. He briefly considered carrying it out of the woods, but if anyone happened to be driving by and saw him, they might think he was abducting a kid. Then they might try to stop him or call the police. Worse, they could try to take his prize for themselves. Hank decided he needed a sack, and quickly shuffled out of the woods. A bus stop was just down the block, and a garbage can was situated beside it. Hank spilled out the thankfully sparse contents onto the street, grabbed the hefty plastic bag, and sprinted back to the woods. He was afraid that the creature would be gone, or awake and furiously chewing through the tape. But it remained lying, bound, and silent. Hank scooped it up, and shoved it into the sack. He tied the top but poked a tiny hole in the side. He didn't want to suffocate it. Whatever the thing was, it was more useful to him alive than dead. He lumbered back to the motel, with the garbage bag slung across his shoulder, hyper-attentive for any feelings of movement from within the plastic. The creature didn't stir, but Hank's back groaned. Once back in his shabby room, Hank opened the bag and stared at the unaware creature. It was smaller than he'd initially imagined. Perhaps it was a baby, and he was now, by default, its surrogate parent. Maybe it was trying to get milk from me or something. Hank remembered how it had awoken to its suckling him. The biggest question was, what exactly was it? An alien? A prehistoric creature? A mutant? A badly deformed bear? The last option seemed the least likely. Hank knew what bears looked like, and this sure as hell wasn't a bear. Perhaps it was some kind of mole. It had dug itself out of the ground, and it looked mostly hairless. Moreover, maybe it was a mole with a birth defect that made it big? Gigantism, that was a real condition. Hank had known a guy on the freak show circuit who had it, and he'd been damn near eight feet tall. Hank tried to be logical. Moles are mammals, just like humans, aren't they? I bet they can get the same thing. Moles could also be fierce, so Hank realized that he would have to be extremely careful. For all he knew, the damn thing had rabies. Before the drugs took over her life, and addled all the sense in her head, 
Frank's mother had instilled an importance of hygiene in her only child. Undoubtedly, she'd be horrified by how rough he lived most of his adult life, but enough of her good early influences stuck with him so that he always carried certain items with him, like toothpaste, a toothbrush, a comb, nail clippers, and a nail file. Now that he had the thing in his possession, Hank had never felt more grateful for his mother's advice. He retrieved the nail clippers and nail file and gently removed the creature from the bag. While it was still out cold, he clipped its nails nearly to the quick, which took excessive effort since the thing had nails as strong and thick as a hawk's talons, and then checked its mouth, intending to file its sharp little teeth down to non-threatening stubs. Curiously, it had no teeth nor tongue. The purse sucker and slack line seemed to be its gab's only two modes. Maybe it's so young that its teeth haven't grown in yet. Hank held on to his baby theory. Yet out in the woods, the thing hadn't felt like a baby, and it had fought with the strength of an adult. Like a mother protecting its cub, or a cougar. Hank shivered at the thought. He didn't much care for wildlife. When he was a boy, he'd once walked too far into the woods at dusk trying to escape Jeb, one of his by then perpetually high mother's especially violent boyfriends, only to find himself face to face with a mountain lion. It had been maybe two feet away from him, and it had growled and bared its teeth threateningly. Hank never forgot the feeling of sinking dread, truly believing that he was about to be torn to shreds. Instead, the big cat had turned and run back up into the mountains from where it had come. Hank for his part, he did its warning and steered clear of those woods since then, preferring to hang out at the arcade whenever Jeb, among others, stopped by. Now here he was, several decades later, crossing paths with another creature of the forest, but this wasn't a passing occurrence. This was fate. Hank felt it in his bones. What's your name? It was a silly question. Even if the thing had been awake, it wouldn't understand English. Hank brayed nervous laughter. Wild animals didn't have names. And now that it was essentially his pet, it was up to him to christen it. Holly was the name that he automatically associated with females. But how the hell did he know it was a girl? He didn't. But he figured calling it a she would play up the cuteness angle. Appeal was a central component to every good act. What do you want your name to be? What do you look like? It seemed only fitting that the name somehow rhymed with Holly. Lolly? Ollie? Molly? Polly? Nah. None of them are right for you, doll. (laughs) Wait, that's it. Dolly. I'll call you Dolly. We're gonna make a fortune. Somehow... Having a name for his captive made Hank feel better about his plans for the future, which were, admittedly, newly formed and hazy. Yet the most pressing problem at hand was what to do with Dolly for the rest of the night. Exhaustion was quickly overtaking Hank, and he wasn't about to cuddle up next to the unconscious pile of skin. As small and cheap and dingy as it was, the room did have a bathroom. Hank decided the best course of action was to put Dolly back in the bag, put the bag in the bathtub, 
shut off the light and closed the door. For good measure, before tumbling into bed, Hank also slid the bedstand table in front of the bathroom's entrance and, after noticing that it was a little rickety, duct-taped the perimeter of the door. If you can get out of there, I'll rename it Houdini. He awoke slightly after 10am to the sound of growls and bangs. Dolly was awake. Hank was relieved that it hadn't slipped into a coma and died, but he was also wary of the commotion it was kicking up. He was hopeful that whatever neighbours he had in adjacent rooms weren't the curious type, or the type to go complaining to the cops. But if animal control came, he'd probably just get a fine at worst. What made him a little nervous was the idea of losing control over his potential meal ticket. What made him really nervous was the daunting task of facing it again when it was conscious and apparently extremely pissed off. Hank armed himself with the skinny bedside lamp and used a pillow as a shield. It was a poor means of protection, but better than nothing. Maybe he'd get lucky and Dolly would turn out to have an insatiable appetite for feathers. Hank was wrong about the feathers, but he was right about Dolly's mood. The thing was pissed off to no end. The second he opened the door, it lunged at him, although its initial furious strength seemed diminished, and its gait was loopy and off-kilter. It's probably got brain damage. For the first time, he realized that, although there were no traces of blood, a portion of the creature's skull was dented inwards. Still, it attacked and growled in its odd way, breathing laboriously. Intimidated, Hank pulled the shower curtain down and wrapped it tightly around the protesting creature. It was a flimsy, plasticky fabric, but with clipped nails, Dolly couldn't manage to break free. Hank pulled the ensnared creature to him and held it tightly, rocking it soothingly until it was calm. He'd known an organ grinder once who calmed his ill-tempered monkey in the same way, and it worked. Within five minutes, Dolly was still and quiet and breathing normally. Hank realized that he couldn't go back to work until it was trained. As he sat upon the grubby tiles and rocked his inhuman ward, he decided to call in Morton and say that he was sick and then spend some of the time training Dolly in the little room. Ah, oh, say I got the stomach flu. No one will question that. The carnival was in town for another four days. That would be more than enough time to get the thing under control and then catch a ride to the next town with Blake in his beat-up old pickup truck. Of course, how he was going to get Dolly into the truck without Blake noticing was another problem he had no way of solving as of yet. Hank had travelled with the carnival for years, and he had shacked up at the motel more than once. The owner was a dowdy dude named Mitch, who covered his office with girly magazine centerfolds, and he was used to Hank. He knew he had steady work and could pay his way, so he probably wouldn't mind letting him stay on the sly for a couple of days as long as he paid up before rolling out of town. I can borrow some books off Blake. He owes me for bailing him out back in Dade County. Of course, the whole reason Blake had ended up in a Florida jail cell was for being involved in a bar fight that Hank had started, but he opted not to dwell on that. The one concrete part of the plan that Hank could bank on was sleeping pills. 
He had gotten a bottle a few years back when he'd gone through a period of insomnia, but it had cleared itself up before he'd even finished half the bottle. He didn't like to touch drugs on account of what had happened to his mother. Booze, sure, but never drugs. Part of the reason he avoided the carny trailers was because he knew most of them were jacked up on one concoction or another. Or at least, they used to be. The carnivals had started testing more in recent years, and he'd seen enough chemical ruination to last him a lifetime. Since the ability to sleep had come back to him naturally, he hadn't used even one sleeping pill. But if they were strong enough to knock out a relatively big man like him, then half of one would surely be enough to knock out Dolly. Over the next few days, Hank stayed holed up in the room. Just himself, Dolly, and the last 30 bucks he had to his name. He spent the days gaining Holly's trust through food and gentle pets, much like he'd once wooed Holly with sweet words and fast food hamburgers, and only snuck out to get grub at Taco Bell when he was sure that Dolly was asleep whilst securely locked up in the bathroom. By the third day, despite the beating he'd administered upon their initial meeting, Hank and the odd little creature he called Dolly had developed quite a rapport. It loved tacos, and seemed to have as much of an affinity for the tortilla bread and cheese as it did for the beef and chicken. Hank did not fare so well on the greasy diet. As the days went on, his stomach grew increasingly wretched and twisted. Oddly, when he showed signs of pain, the creature seemed to be compassionate, even tender. One evening, it approached Hank, reached up its dully clawed hands and rubbed his belly. It was moving, something his mother might have done when he was little and LSD was yet to be introduced into her life, and it nearly made him tear up. After a mere few days, he was sure he had the thing tamed enough to trust it, to a certain degree anyway. Hank had a sizable cardboard box that he took around with him from town to town, mostly to carry his tools and bulky coat and anything else that wouldn't quite fit in his aging suitcase. He emptied those contents into plastic bags and laid a blanket in the box, encouraging Dolly to get used to lying down in it, which didn't take much effort. The creature seemed to like curling up in the box and sleeping soundly in the confined space. Holly had owned a cat which had done the same. On the day of the carnival's moving, Hank fed Dolly a big breakfast of tacos and fries laced with ground-up sleeping pill. As expected, it took effect nearly instantly and dropped Dolly into a deep slumber. Hank dragged the box into the bathroom, secured the door, and headed off to the site where he disassembled rides and packed up stuffed toys and made enough money to cover the motel debt in full. Yet the whole time he worked, he thought of nothing but Dolly. What if she overdosed? I hope she's not having a reaction. She could get gas pains. I wish she was with me. Over the course of their time together, he gradually come to think of Dolly as a she, and not an it. He got Blake to give him a ride back to the motel and he used his crappy stomach as an excuse to burst into the bathroom, desperate to see Dolly. He fully expected to find her lying there dead, 
but instead she was still sleeping peacefully and breathing deeply with seemingly no complications at all. Hank was elated. He was keenly aware that he was starting to develop strong protective feelings for Dolly, nearly paternal. He closed the box lid and packed it carefully into Blake's truck along with his other meager odds and ends. They hightailed it out of Modesto, California by midday. Blake drove down the freeway blasting country music, chain-smoking and cursing out Tammy Lynn Brown, a ticket-taker for not giving him the time of day even though she was damn near 30 years younger than him. Normally, Frank sat gunshot, drank a beer and nodded his head to the music while occasionally grunting in agreement with whatever Blake was ranting about. He'd never noticed how badly he drove his total disregard for the speed limit, his incredibly sharp turns, his constant veering in and out of lanes, and in the past it hadn't even occurred to Hank that Blake was a dangerous driver, but now, with precious cargo like Dolly on board, his perception had changed. By the time they'd reached Sonora, nearly an hour later, Blake was ranting at and about Hank, who had commented on his lackluster driving skills one too many times. Next time, find another ride. They pulled into the big field where the carnival would soon stand in illuminated glory. Hank wasted no time in grabbing the box from under the back seat and running to the side of the pickup, out of view from everyone, to peek inside. He'd been sure that Blake's screaming was going to awaken Dolly. Hell, the whole trip he'd been expecting her to pop out of the box and scare Blake so bad that he'd crash the car and kill them all. But she was still slumbering deeply not stirring, but breathing blessedly and steadily. I've got to get to the motel. Hank remembered the little hole in the wall he'd stayed at last year, not two blocks from the fairgrounds. Hank gathered up his other scarce belongings and sprinted to the motel before anyone could stop him. Once Dolly was secured in the bathroom of the locked room, Hank returned to the carnival and spent hours setting up. As he was helping to hammer the walls of the House of Mirrors together, he spotted Mystic Mike arriving in his fancy trailer, dressed to the nines and sipping on an iced tea. Guys that grand never had to do the hard labour. Hank hoped that this would be his last go-around as a lowly roadie. It took Dolly more than 16 hours to wake up. Hank's relief outweighed his exhaustion, and he used the day's pay to buy a king's feast at the local Greasy Spoon. He and Dolly ate together on the bathroom floor, sharing grunts of approval. Hank called in sick the next day, and slept in with Dolly curled into his side, laying her head on his pained stomach as if she sympathised with his discomfort. The next day, he brought her to Morton. Even wide awake, Dolly travelled well in the cardboard box. Hank waltzed into the double-wide trailer that Morton called his office and set the box down on the desk, disturbing his boss's afternoon coffee break. I want to be part of the show. Hank tried not to guff at the look of utter surprise on Morton's face. Are you on a sauce spot? What the hell do you imagine? Before he could finish, Hank opened the box and took out Dolly. She promptly snarled at Morton, who recoiled so quickly that he nearly fell off his chair. What the hell is that? Dolly, my business partner. Although I guess you'd call her more of an attraction. Morton stared at him, wide-eyed and disbelieving. 
What the hell is this bot? A puppet? Does it look like a puppet to you? Morton stared at Dolly, and a shark-like grin spread across his face. Hank knew what Morton was thinking. He'd rigged enough carnival games for him to know exactly how he schemed. He's fixing to get rid of me in some accident so he can keep her for himself. This little beauty came to me out of the woods. I trained her and I know how to handle her. I guess you could say I'm a surrogate parent. I'd make sure to keep the rube safe because she's not always friendly to strangers. Morton narrowed his eyes, challenging Hank. Really? She looks sweet to me. He extended his hand and leaned forwards. As if on cue, Dolly growled and swatted at him. Hank could have kissed her. But instead he pulled her back, a smug grin forming on his face. Told ya. At that moment, a ripple of pain shot across his abdomen. The ingestion flared up at the strangest of times. Dolly sensed it and nestled into him, laying her head across his torso and emitting purr-like sounds. The seeming display of affection convinced Morton of their bond. A crook he was, but he was also a businessman, and he saw the potential in Dolly. That day, he signed Hank on and agreed to give him and his foundling a place in the oddities tent. The news travelled around the small world of the carnival's inner circle. At first, no one could believe it. Workers didn't become performers overnight. But that's precisely what Hank had done. Morden arranged a space for them in the freak show section between the mermaid baby, which was really just a dried-out fishtail sewn onto an old taxidermied monkey head, and the skull of a unicorn, which... Hank knew had been created by a particularly gifted sculptor who would carve anything out of animal bones. Morden met him when they were in Dallas a few years back, and from then on the unicorn skull had been a valued part of the show. Next to those two unremarkable items, Dolly was even more enthralling. Banners bearing the names were placed throughout the fair. Hank and Dolly, the darling of darkness... According to Morton, Dolly looked just threatening enough to pass for a baby demon. The spiel is that you nearly died in a bar fight and ended up in hell for five minutes before the paramedics brought you back and this thing followed you to Earth. Morton chewed on the end of an unlit cigar. Yeah, Yeah, that kind of tale will attract every horror buff in this state. Yet it was the Carnies, not horror fans, who first flocked to see her. All except Mystic Mike. Hank supposed he rarely concerned himself with the oddities. Blake was in utter disbelief that he had unknowingly transported the freak, as he termed dear Dolly, all the way to Sonora, and tried to swindle a percentage out of Hank, who promptly told him to go screw himself. Over the course of the carnival's run, Dolly showed well and drew bigger crowds by the day. At first, people came to simply stare at her as she sat on a pedestal and watched them. Shock? Awe? Revulsion? Hank watched the faces of the pimpled teenagers and the fat women in sundresses and reveled in delight of getting rich off their dollars. 
their morbid fascination, their greedy curiosity. On the day before the fair moved on from Sonora, Mystic Mike paid Hank a visit. Hank wasn't surprised. He'd been drawing bigger crowds for days. I suppose I owe you congratulations on your success. You and that mechanical Dow have got a good act going. <laughs> Dolly's no doll. Take a closer look. Mike took a step forward, locked his eyes with Dolly, and then jumped back as if he'd received an electric shock. <gasps> his head jolted slightly, and his eyelids flickered before snapping open and darting their gaze between Hank's rumbling belly and Dolly. He was quivering slightly, looking as if he'd just seen a bad premonition. It was the least composed Hank had ever seen him. Get rid of that thing! That's not normal! <laughs> no kidding, genius. This is the freak show. I mean it! It's not of this world. It's... It's something else. Something bad. Ah, give me a break. She's weird looking, but docile as a lamb. You have no idea. And you do. So go ahead. Tell me. Spill the beans. I just sense something. It's strong. Bad. Get rid of it. Put it back where you found it. He was backing up as he spoke. And when he got about ten feet away, he turned and ran. Hank thought the whole thing seemed staged and scripted. Like a scene from a bad horror movie... Mike might have been a smooth operator, but there was no way in hell Hank believed that he had any actual powers. Mike never came back to see Dolly. In fact, shortly thereafter, he signed up with another carnival and headed out to the East Coast, where he subsequently made a fortune. His absence made Dolly the star attraction in the non-ride category of Morton's Travelling Carnival. She was enjoying the attention and got easier and easier to train. She'd dance if Hank put on music. She loved Elvis and Jefferson Aeroplane, which were, incidentally, Holly's favourites too. And she eventually permitted Hank to dress her up in bonnets and tutus and cute little gowns. Sometimes her fans even sent him clothes for her to wear. Dolly was developing quite a cult following. Their earnings allowed him to move into a single trailer, then a double-wide, with full amenities and fancy furnishings. Best of all, they didn't have to share with anyone but each other. Hank should have been on cloud nine, but Dolly was becoming quite a handling. She demanded constant attention and refused to leave his side, clinging to him like a shadow. She developed a fascination with Mardi Gras beads after being presented with one by a fan and demanded that Hank supply her with an increasing number of necklaces and other assorted shiny things. Her appetite was insatiable, and she preferred greasy fast food meals and chocolate milkshakes at midnight. If Hank was slow to supply her with anything she wished, she growled at him so ferociously that he feared her. As the time went on, Hank's stomach rumbled and extended. His feet swelled, his back ached, and he gained two dozen pounds in the span of three months. 
At times he felt frustrated, used and unappreciated because Dolly had a mile-wide selfish streak. She'd rip up newspapers, a favourite pastime, and leave him to pick up the pieces. She'd throw her milkshakes at the wall just to see them splatter. It was akin to a sport for her. And then watch in satisfaction as he scrubbed up the mess. She was addicted to info commercials and threw things at Hank's head when they ended in the wee hours, blaming him for the ceasing of her amusement. Similarly, she lashed out accusingly at him whenever a song ended. When it happened during a showtime, Hank put up with it because the rubes loved it. In private, it wasn't nearly as tolerable. She'd ignore him and hide from him, but if he stepped out of the trailer without her for even one moment, she'd launch into shrieking frenzies. Needy, ungiving she was, in all honesty, quite difficult. But she could also be sweet, especially when his stomach acted up. When the pain became unbearable and he had to lie down, Dolly would lay her head on his tummy, listening to the gurgles and groans within and caress him so affectionately that all would be forgiven. He couldn't stay mad at her. Late spring turned into summer, which quickly slipped into autumn. Hank ecstatically welcomed the cooler weather and the onset of the Halloween season. In two months, what amounted to eight short weeks, he'd be working on winter wonderland displays in the mall. He was already angling to deck Dolly out in red and green and pass her off as an alien elf. Those sets were full of glittery decorations, Christmas trees, Santas, reindeers, elves, candy canes, and more sweetness and light than you could choke on. He much prefers the weeks leading up to Halloween when he got to set up horror houses full of blood and gore and live actors who scared the hell out of teenagers. For the past five years, he'd been trying to land a gig as a performer just for the satisfaction of hearing the little creep scream. He'd never been successful, but now, thanks to his dolly, he had secured a whole segment to himself. Hell, she was practically the main attraction. Sometimes life did turn out well. The plot set up they'd concocted was that Hank was a mad scientist who'd created Dolly by combining a giant mutated mole and a deformed bear. It was a goofy premise, but Morden's company had designed their whole get-up on it, turning the previous year's Murder Manor into the Lair Laboratory, run by dreaded Dr. Loveless, for whom Hank would assume the role. He'd never acted before, but he'd perfected his manacle laughter. He had desperately wanted to work the acting portion of the horror market for years, and he'd been excitedly anticipating the gig since Borden offered it to him in late July. But on opening night, Hank was in agony. He gained nearly 40 pounds around his midsection since finding Dolly, and his body was fiercely protesting. Had it been any other night or any other occasion, he would have opted out. But neither hell nor high water or bellyache was going to prevent him from making the debut of his Dr. Loveless character. Dolly was naked for this show, something she seemed not to mind. She was very fussy about what she wore and fickle about when she wore it. Hank considered her compliancy to be a blessing. She also seemed keenly aware that he was uncomfortable and kept close to him, staring fixedly at his stomach. Opening night was packed, 
Word about Dolly's inclusion in the attraction had gotten out, and a line had started to form at three in the afternoon, even though the doors didn't open until seven in the evening. Hank was sore, but he managed to play his role. Most of the rubes assumed that his gasps and wheezes were part of the performance, and they screamed and awed over Dolly as if they'd never seen anything grander or more horrifying. For the first two hours, things went accordingly. <laughs> Hank cackled laughter and Dolly growled, and a seemingly endless parade of rubes came and went. And then... Something snapped inside Hank's gut. He felt fear, filling him with red-hot agony. He fell to his knees and screamed, and the gaggle of rubes he'd been ranting at laughed, convinced his wails were part of the script that coincided with the continuous audio soundtrack, blaring screams and chainsaws. But Hank was not acting. He was suffering, dying. Something, some... Things were clawing at his inside, ripping through organs and tissues, sending searing white-hot pain through his midsection. Hank's words fell upon a nearby bystander, a pudgy girl in a pink top that looked two sizes too small, who clearly didn't comprehend the situation. Hank couldn't articulate his words. His mouth had filled with blood. And as soon as he parted his lips, it spilled out onto the floor. Ew, that's gross! Hank laid on the floor, grabbing his belly, and screamed as he was pierced by dozens of tiny razor blades from within. Suddenly, Dolly was standing over him, chattering wildly. She was more alive and excited than he had ever seen her. She patted his stomach. At first, Hank thought she was trying to comfort him. Then he realized she wasn't patting. She was digging. If he hadn't kept her nails clipped, she'd be tearing into him with fury. Suddenly, a realization dawned on Hank. Dolly had impregnated him. The night he dreamt of swallowing the grapes, he'd actually been swallowing her eggs, harboring them, carrying them. He had been her surrogate, and now her young were hatching. They were born with their claws intact and sharp. As the first one burst from Hank's stomach, he clearly saw the little talons shining in the strobe lights. The crowd was screaming and laughing and cheering incredulously, still believing that this was all part of the show. At least I won't die alone. Hank noticed that more and more people were packing into the space. Hank birthed one monster after another with Dolly dancing around him, gurgling in victory as he lay bleeding and dying. The last thing Hank Bot ever saw were the hatchlings, followed closely by Dolly running into the crowd. Screams filled the air as they slashed skin and drank up the spilling blood with their strange sucking mouths. Then the screams started in earnest. Panic. Chaos. Stampede! Hank closed his eyes and welcomed the darkness. His purpose had been served. 
of years? And what have you got to show for it? All that sorcery at your fingertips, and the best you could do was play second fiddle to a dummy. <laughs> oh, oh, and a little bird told me that you're not a vampire at all. That the entire thing was a ruse. And that the only thing giving you your immortality was the talisman itself. And now that it's mine, well, for the first time in ages, you might have a chance to know what it feels like to be really human. But then again, I can't have you bothering me for it back, now can I? That would ruin all my fun. So, I'm going to make sure you can't. Hmm. But, you know what? Dying in your sleep is too good for you. Wake up, GM. I want my face to be the last thing you ever see. Open your eyes. Look at me! You're a terrible murder, kid. Lousy shot. Otis? What? I figured you might try something like this, so I came prepared. Oh, bulletproof vest, eh? <laughs> well, that's unexpected. Let's see if your face is bulletproof, too. Hey, kid. You, uh, might want to look behind you. Oh, shut up and die, Jiry. <laughs> I've had just about enough of your... <gasps> GM. I was, uh... I was just kidding, man. <laughs> um, I mean... I mean, not kidding, I was, um... Uh, I was gonna wake you up. And we could take the castle back together. It'll be like old times. I swear. I would never try to off you, man. You know me. <laughs> it's me. Jason. We're buddies. Mother of God. <laughs> Why, hello, Otis. What brings you to my resting place? Come to steal my talisman as well, are you? No, 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 of course not. That was all Jason's idea. I had no idea he was going to steal from you or... or kill you. Otis, Otis, Otis... I don't like being lied to. You knew exactly what you came for. But you've been lied to as well. <laughs> this amulet. 
This amulet isn't what has kept me alive all these years. <laughs> it was gifted to me long ago by someone who knew better than to ask a mortal to protect it. You have no idea what this amulet really is, or what it is. But whoever asked Jason to murder me does, and you're just as guilty as both of them. Now, now, come on, Jim. I'm just a patsy, see? I've been set up. For love of God, don't kill me. Dying once today is enough for me. I'll do anything, I swear. Just name it. Perhaps you can be of use to me, Jiry. Someone or something went to a lot of trouble to send Jason after me. And they're going to be very, very upset when they realize I'm not dead, and that their tool is now under my control. Tool? What tool? You mean Jason. How's he going to help you now that he's dead? <sighs> do to me for the love of oh it just keeps getting worse you're telling me that Jason is now a vampire <laughs> I've given him a gift would you like to live forever as well the only bird I want is out of a double cheeseburger so be it, Otis. I'll find a use for you anyway. Jason, you now belong to me. What? I belong to you? <laughs> That'll be the day. <laughs> I answer to no one. You have been initiated into my coven. Your loyalty to me is now compulsory. Oh, we'll see about that. Now, now, Jason. You don't want to do that. Why shouldn't I? Because if any harm comes to me, you'll perish as well. What? That's for real? Like in the movies? I'm afraid so. Well, uh, that sucks. Mm, look on the bright side. You'll never grow old, and you get to wear a cloak. Ugh, do I have to drink blood now? Ugh, because that's disgusting. Hmm, I'll admit, it's an acquired taste. So, what's next, boss? <laughs> we take back the castle, 
Follow me, boys. Oh, come on. More walking? We just got here. <sighs> Lead the way in. Oh, Jason. What is a gyre? Don't kill me again. <laughs> no promises. Thank you for joining us tonight for the Simply Scary Podcast. If you like what you've heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season, or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just this program, but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases, including premium versions of our other shows, such as Horror Hill and Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Not only that, but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help us continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Taylor, and you've been listening to the Simply Scary Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was written by Craig Roshek and performed by special guests Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill Podcast, and Otis Jiry, host of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Visit us at chillingtalesfordarknights.com today to support this program by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to premium extended versions of our episodes, our audio archive, and ad-free downloads of all of your favorite stories, including those you've heard today. The host of the Simply Scary podcast is GM Danielson. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music for the program was produced by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering are overseen by executive producer and director Craig Groshek, with production of individual stories by members of our talented sound design team. Artwork for the show's episodes by David Romero. For more information about the authors, performers, and artists involved in the production of this and our other episodes, visit our website today. Got a scary story of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tale considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. 
You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from us and another episode of this program each and every Tuesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button and tell us how we're doing and leave a comment. Until next week, listeners, turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.